Probably I'll let everybody stand up and stretch a moment. <laughs> you want to do that? Go ahead. Stand up and stretch a moment. <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to let you go home until I've preached, so sit back down. <laughs> Last week, we took a close look at Satan's first ally in the battle for our souls, the beast from the sea. We saw how Satan can take what God has ordained to be his special minister to ensure justice on earth, civil government, and pervert it into a beast that seeks to devour us. We saw how governments from the Rome of John's day to Hitler's Third Reich to our own republic have often set themselves up as gods, and how they have drawn the allegiance of believers away from one true God to a false god of government. We concluded that any government that claims to be God that disregards the laws of God or seeks to become a godlike substitute for its people is Satan's ally, the beast from the sea. His second ally, as revealed in Revelation 13, is the beast from the earth. And we want to focus our attention on the second beast this morning. We begin by taking a look at the nature of of the beast. Revelation 13, verses 11 and 12. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Whereas the first beast had come up out of the sea, the second beast came up out of the earth. And whereas the first beast was a horrendous monster with the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, mouth of a lion, and seven heads and ten horns, the second beast had only two horns and apparently looked like a lamb. But its looks were deceptive, for it spoke as a dragon or as a serpent. The word can be translated either way. We previously translated it dragon in Revelation because of the descriptions that accompany the word. But here some have suggested the word should be translated serpent and thereby indicate that the lamb spoke in a beguiling and deceptive way, as did the serpent in the garden. But either way, the lamb wasn't what it at first seemed to be. It really wasn't a lamb at all, but a beast. John then makes clear that the second beast is an agent of the first, that it exercises all the authority of the first beast and works in conjunction with it, and that it actually seeks to make those who dwell on the earth worship the first beast. 
Okay, John makes that clear, but what does it mean? What would John's original hearers have thought when they read of this beast from the earth that made them worship the beast from the sea? If we're to understand this vision, that's the question we must ask ourselves. Now, if we're right in our understanding that the beast from the sea represented the Roman Empire, the Emperor Domitian in particular, then this second beast most likely represented an individual or agency charged with the enforcement of emperor worship. And if the fact that the first beast came from the sea pictures the Roman authorities crossing the Mediterranean Sea to get to Asia Minor, then the fact that the second beast came from the earth most likely indicates that the second beast arose from Asia Minor itself. Now, this understanding is confirmed by the fact that there was an agency, a concilia, set up in Asia Minor to enforce the state religion. This concilia worked primarily through a type of priesthood charged with the responsibility of presiding over the emperor worship that took place in special temples built across Asia Minor. Now, this would certainly fit the picture we see in the vision. And it fits with the statements in Revelation 16, 13, and 19, 20 that identify the second beast as a false prophet. So most likely this beast from the earth was, for Christians in John's day, the quasi-religious authorities that sought to impose emperor worship on the residents of Asia Minor. But what would this beast be today? Obviously, we don't have a priesthood dedicated to emperor worship. But do we have false prophets who would lead us into the worship of false gods? Let's keep that question in the back of our minds as we go on to consider the method of the beast. Verses 13 through 15. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the beast to be killed. The beast from the earth, the false prophet, used signs, wonders, and deception to convince men to worship the beast from the sea. And in John's vision, he saw the beast performing great signs, even mimicking Elijah's calling down fire from heaven to confirm his false message. Numerous other miracles were apparently performed as well in an effort to get men to make an image of the beast, to make an idol that would represent their new God, a God who had been killed but came back to life. That God, as we saw last week, was Domitian, who many viewed as a reincarnation of the infamous Nero. 
Now, all this would seem to indicate that the false prophets, the priests of emperor worship, had supernatural powers. That they could, in fact, perform signs and wonders and miracles in their attempts to establish the emperor as God. Now, does that surprise you? Does it shock you to hear that the allies of Satan can perform miracles? It shouldn't. In Mark 13, 22, Jesus explicitly taught that false Christs and false prophets would arise and would show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, Paul made it clear that the man of lawlessness, the man of destruction, would come in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with the deception of wickedness. So it shouldn't surprise us to discover that Satan's allies can perform miracles to make it appear that their message has the sanction of God. And that, by the way, is why the miraculous should never be the final confirmation of truth. Miracles can be used by spiritual powers to deceive. Miracles that accomplish good, even miracles of healing. After all, Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians 11:14 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So it should be obvious that the beast of the earth can use the deception of false wonders. But everything he does to confirm his message isn't necessarily supernatural in nature. Some have suggested that the making of the image to speak was ventriloquism. And that may very well be true. There are accounts of such being done in pagan temples of the period, and we actually have idols that were obviously designed to project the voice of a man hidden behind it. But whether the signs were supernatural in origin or simple acts of deception, either way, they were intended to lead men and women into believing that false gods were true and must be worshipped. We then note that if deception by itself wasn't sufficient to bring about compliance, the threats of violence and even death were included to ensure it. So the beast of the earth used signs, wonders, deception, and intimidation in the first century, all in an attempt to make Christians give up their faith. But is the beast from the earth still active today? Let's think about that as we go on to examine the mark of the beast, verses 16 through 18. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. 
Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. The mark of the beast. What is it? And what does it signify? Now, these questions have hovered around the mysterious 666 of Revelation for centuries. Let's see if we can find acceptable answers to these questions in the text itself. To begin with, what is the mark of the beast? Let's first think in terms of John's day. What would his original hearers have identified as the mark of the beast? John indicates it was some kind of mark placed by the beast on the right hand or forehead of everyone, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free alike. And physical marks for identification purposes were common in John's day. Slaves were actually branded by their owners, and soldiers often branded themselves with the name of their commander. Other forms of identification could be official documents and seals that indicated a particular person had complied with a regulation or had official sanction to do something. So it is possible that the mark of the beast was some kind of physical mark or document given to signify compliance with the demands of the beast of the earth. Now, historians indicate that such a mark or document was given to individuals who obliged the state by burning a pinch of incense and declaring Caesar is Lord. That mark or document would give the bearer the right to enter into commercial transactions in Roman society. In view of their circumstances, most Christians in Asia Minor around 96 AD would probably have viewed the mark in such light. However, it's also possible that the mark seen by John wasn't intended to signify a physical mark at all. In the seventh chapter, 144,000, which we identified as the church, were pictured as having their foreheads sealed with the mark of God. And in the 14th chapter, we were told, or will be told, that the 144,000 have the name of Christ and his Father written on their foreheads. Now, obviously, we don't have God's name visibly written on our foreheads. But if we're in Christ, we've been sealed, marked as belonging to him nonetheless. The marking, therefore, could refer to a spiritual mark. The forehead could indicate that one's thoughts have been impressed, and the right hand could signify that one's actions testify to his allegiance. When contrasted with the sealing of the 144,000, this passage could simply be indicating that just as God marks his own by changing their thoughts and actions, so Satan and his allies mark those who belong to him by affecting their thoughts and actions as well. And obviously a man's commitment is going to affect his commercial 
transactions. As we saw in the case of Thyatira, those who aren't willing to lower themselves to a society's standards in a dog-eat-dog world and who won't compromise their convictions for the almighty dollar often do suffer economic discrimination. So the mark of the beast doesn't have to be a physical mark. It may take the physical form in certain societies, but we don't have to identify some physical mark as the mark of the beast in every society. Now, some have suggested that our social security number or the UPC codes on the products we buy are the mark of the beast. I think that's ridiculous and needs no response. The next question that plagues us in regard to the mark of the beast is what's the significance of the number 666? John speaks of the mark of the beast as the name of the beast or the number of his name. And verse 18 reads, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, many have taken that as a challenge to try to decipher 666 into a man's name, thinking that if they could do so, they would be able to identify the beast. And all kinds of number equals letter systems have been devised to translate 666 into a name. The names thus deciphered have been legion. They range from Nero to the Pope to Martin Luther to Hitler to Henry Kissinger to Saddam Hussein and many others. Such attempts are futile and unnecessary. Let's carefully read verse 18 again. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, John did not ask his readers to calculate the meaning of of the number, suggesting that if they had wisdom and understanding, they should be able to decipher it. He simply asked them to figure out a number that would represent the beast. As we've seen, numbers are used as symbols over and over again in Revelation. 144,000 signifies the church. It was calculated by multiplying the 12 tribes by the 12 apostles and then multiplying the answer by 1,000. It became a symbol of the totality of the church, the multitude from the Old Testament dispensation and from the New Testament period that together make up the kingdom of God. All John was trying to do when he said calculate the number of the beast was to challenge his readers to come up with an appropriate number for the beast before he told them what it was. He even gave a clue as to what it was when he said the number was that of a man or a human number. And this, by the way, also made it clear that while the beast was empowered by the dragon, it wasn't really supernatural. It was just a man or council of men. So what's the number of a man? 
since seven is the number for God, for perfection, what number would fall short of perfection and could thereby represent fallen man? How about the number six? We do know that the number six had a sinister connotation for the Jews, that it signified that which approached perfection but failed and thereby came to stand for anything evil. So if we wanted to come up with a number to stand for man-made false religions or false ideologies that had as their goal the destruction of one's faith in God, what could be more appropriate than the emphatic 666? I'm convinced that's the significance of the number 666. It's merely a symbol used in Revelation to represent false religions, false prophets, false ideologies. In John's day, it represented the pagan priests who used signs, wonders, deception, and intimidation in an attempt to get everyone, including Christians, to worship Caesar. Today, any false religion, false prophet, or false ideology that seeks to draw us away from faith in the one true God would certainly qualify. And since the work of the beast of the earth is to get us to shift our allegiance from God to the beast from the sea, to a false god of human agencies and governments, any individual, institution, or even philosophy that would encourage us to trust in man and his institutions rather than God could be known as a beast from the earth. So is it possible to identify a particular false religion or ideology that seems to be fulfilling the role of the beast from the earth in our society? I think we can. It's a beast of humanism. The philosophy that elevates man to the position of God, a worldview that points to the wonders and miracles of modern science and technology and says we no longer need a God to protect us, to provide for us, or to give meaning to our life. This philosophy or ideology has infiltrated the arts and sciences, our legal and educational systems, the government, the business world, and the media in general. So the beast from the earth can readily be seen in the secular humanism of our day. And indeed, there is pressure on all sides for us to stop looking to God for answers and to look instead to man, to education, to technology, to government for the answers to all the dilemmas that face modern man. If we buy into that, we are worshiping the beast. And our mind carries the mark. Six, six, six. I pray that's not the case with you. I trust you still hold firmly to the conviction 
that it is in Christ alone that we find the answers to the questions of life. That's not to say that God can't use higher education, technological advances, or governmental policies to affect change and provide for solutions for many of the problems we face. But it is to say that we must never allow education, technology, or government to be cut loose from the anchor of truth revealed in God's word. We must never allow these agencies of man the freedom to ignore what God has said. And we must never allow them to take the place of God in our lives. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And nothing can ever be allowed to replace that as the basis for our hope for the future. Is your hope for the future solidly anchored to Jesus Christ? I pray that it is. And if it isn't, I give you the opportunity to make it so today by confessing your faith in him and allowing him to take the lead in your life. Come.